Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey, podcast lovers. My name is Haley, and I run the Doe Identify Podcast. I have been passionate about helping the unidentified get their names back ever since I found out I lived within miles of where Sherry Ann Jarvis, formerly known as the Walker County Jane Doe, was found. In my podcast, I tell the stories and provide information about unidentified people in hopes of reaching their loved ones and getting their names back. So come join me and help me advocate for these people. You never know, you could recognize someone's story. Well, we have an exciting and different episode today because it is our one year birthday of the podcast. Is it our birthday or our anniversary? Birthday, I'd say. Birthday. Okay. We'll go with birthday. I'm not going to sing happy birthday. No one wants to hear that. Nope. Just pretend that I'm a good singer and I'm singing us happy birthday, but I'm not actually going to do it. (laughs) So first thing I want to do is thank everyone who has listened to us for the last year. And binged our episodes and said hi to us about our stories on Instagram, on Facebook, our friends, new friends that we didn't know before that we are friends with now because of the podcast. It's awesome. So happy birthday, happy anniversary. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Declan, for doing this with me because this is so much fun to do with you. Yeah, it's a lot easier doing it with another person too, I feel. I have to do this alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think people would be really tired of hearing just me talk after a while and sound a little crazy because I'd want to have a conversation with somebody and then be like, oh, I don't have anybody to have a conversation with. Damn. (laughs) Just the voices in your own head. Well, there's a few of them, so it's fine. It's fine. We're doing something a little different today too we are so instead of doing our usual one brutal one bizarre we came together to make one story pretty much about the manson family and some bizarre stuff that goes on along with some brutal stuff so it's gonna be one longer story today instead of two separate ones buckle up because this is probably going to be the longest episode is my guess that we've ever done. Yeah. It's going to be fun to edit. (laughs) Yeah. I say that now and that it'll probably be like the shortest one because we just like ran through all of the information and then we're like, (laughs) Oh shit, we're done. This was supposed to be long. The script is pretty fucking long. (laughs) It is. It's the longest one that I think we've ever done. So. Well, Well, get started. Oh, yes, tell drink. us the drink. <laughs> yes, so tell us this the drink, drink to I go have with it. picked out is called the Surfer on Acid. It's one ounce of Jaeger, one ounce of coconut rum, and one ounce of pineapple juice. Optionally, you can garnish with a pineapple wedge, but as we know, I don't do that here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so gather all the ingredients in a cocktail shaker, shake with ice. And strain into a cup with ice. You ready to try it? I am ready to try it. I'm a little. I'm a little concerned. The color's kind of gross. I'm not a gi- yeah, giant fan like of the brown water. Color. <laughs> yeah. And I shook the hell out of mine, and so it's still foamy. It's, it's been frothy. a good. Yeah, mine's frothy yeah. too. I don't know. Yeah, I did garnish mine because I wanted pineapple anyway. So I thought. I might as well do a little fruity garnish and put 
<laughs> put it on my glass. So let's give it a shot. That's okay. It's not bad. Grossest thing we've had, but I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites. Definitely wouldn't order this think, again at a bar, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think if you went to a bar and said, can I have that? They probably would look at you like you're insane because I've never <laughs> heard of it before. Me either. But it fits our story fairly well, I, I feel. It does. It does, all things considered. Um, I do think that Jaeger is more root beer flavored than it is black licorice flavored. All I taste is now that I've, when I drink it. So. Yeah, now that I've had it a second time, I mean, the first time we had it was with that, I don't remember the name of the drink, but it had root beer in it. So it really just tasted like root beer. I do get like a little hint of a smell of root beer. I don't know why I've been so afraid of it all these years. I think it would be good. You just have to find the right thing to mix it with. Yeah. But I it's don't not, taste the rum at all. It tastes the root beer and pineapple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the coconut rum just kind of disappears in there somewhere. Yeah. I think the pineapple juice is what makes it frothy. It gets like yeah, kind of weird consistency so. to it. Yeah. It all it's, it's almost really frothy annoying, like though. the egg white. I can't find the fucking small cans of it at my store anymore. All they have is the light version, which tastes more like stevia than it does pineapple. Oh gross. So I had to use like a bit I had to buy a giant jug of it. Giant bottle. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get into okay. this story before. We end up Before everybody falls taking asleep. A whole day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, like Declan said, we're doing a different format. I'm going to be talking about the brutal side of the Manson family, and Declan's going to be talking about the bizarre stuff. I mean, technically, it's all bizarre and all brutal, but there's some bizarre stuff that uh, some, some people might not know information about. That, yeah. Yeah, so to start it off, Charles Manson was born on November 12, 1934 in Ohio. His parents were Ada Maddox and Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. That's a lot of names. So was his first name Colonel or was he a colonel in the military? Well, funny you should ask. Oh. It's his given name. We'll get there probably. Oh. No, we're getting there right now. It's his given name. He was not a colonel. His parents named him Colonel. So Colonel I don't know Sanders why. might not even be in the military. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> He's just he, named Colonel. <laughs> yeah. He did like to tell people that he was a colonel, but he, in fact, was not a colonel. Apparently, that was his just his name. So, okay. however, starting off with Charles, the, the bizarre, but in a weird way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Charles didn't know his biological father, so he didn't he didn't know him at all. Um, his mother married William Manson a couple of months before Charles was born, and he was given William's last name. His mother was absent a lot of the time, leaving him with various babysitters while she went out drinking. When Charles was five, his mother was arrested for assault and robbery. She was sentenced to five years in prison, and Charles was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. When his mother was paroled three years later, they moved to another town in West Virginia. She continued to spend time away from home, drinking, and Charles was left to be on his own a lot. They later moved to Indiana, and his mother remarried. Charles was not great about going to school. He was truant a lot, and he got into trouble for theft. He also claimed that he set fire to his school when he was nine years old. I don't, I don't know if that was true, but that was at least something that he claimed. Um, from the age of Teachers 13 to them. 17. Oh, yeah, for sure. From the age of 13 to 17, Manson was sent numerous times to juvenile detention schools in different states as a result of various criminal charges. 
usually for petty theft or robbery. So his teen years, he was in not great situations. Uh, the facilities were geared to working with youth who had behavioral issues or criminal offenses. Basically, the kids in these facilities were not nice kids. The schools often used corporal punishment to enforce their rules. Manson didn't like being in these facilities, and he would run away. A lot. The first facility was in Indiana, and he ran home to his mother. That didn't last long, and she sent him back. He continued to run away from schools, but didn't go home anymore choosing to run away to different cities and commit crimes along the way. Sometimes he would run by himself. Other times he would run away with other detainees from the facilities. Each time he was eventually caught committing more crimes, sometimes in other states, and would get sent to a different detention school. His last state school was in Indiana. This school was particularly bad situation and Manson was sexually assaulted and beaten by other kids at the location. This is when he developed his self-defense technique that he called the insane game. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, he would act insane. He would scream, wave his arms around, and look like a lunatic. And he did it when he felt like he couldn't physically defend himself. And it worked fairly well to some extent. I mean, he still was in the facility, but some people did leave him alone. He ran away from this school 18 times. She it's so many. Uh, his last runaway event was with two other boys when uh, Manson was 16 years old. They stole vehicles and robbed gas stations with the plan of driving to California. They were caught in Utah, and since they had crossed state lines with a stolen vehicle, they were arrested on federal charges. This led to his first imprisonment at a federal juvenile facility in Washington, D.C. At that facility, he was given tested, given Given testing to determine that he was illiterate, yet he had an above-average IQ. Well, I imagine he's illiterate because he didn't really go to school. He's put in these detention yeah. facilities where he's just getting his ass kicked by people. Bad things are happening to him, and he just keeps running away. So, I mean, I hope they weren't surprised by that. But um, they also labeled him as aggressively antisocial. I would say that's probably true. About a month before his 17th birthday, Manson was transferred to a minimum security institution in Virginia. This was done based on the recommendation of his psychiatrist. However, bad behavior was his pattern, and in this prison, it continued. He started turning his aggression towards other inmates, including raping them. It led to his transfer from minimum security to higher level facilities until he was released at 19 years old, in May of 1954. He was supposed to stay in a maximum security level reformatory until he turned 21, but that facility released him early, apparently due to good behavior. So I, I don't know how you get in trouble and you get sent to from minimum to maximum security and then they go, oh, but you're reformed now so you can get out early, but that's what happened. The following year, he married his first wife, Rosalie Willis, and they had a son. However, Manson was not behaving himself after marrying Rosalie, and he continued to steal cars and drive across state lines. Again, we learned, hmm, that's a federal offense. It occurred multiple times, one charge resulting in probation, but when it happened again, his probation was revoked and he was sent to prison in California in March of 1956. He was paroled about a year and a half later in September 1958. Soon after that, his criminal activity continued, including trafficking women for sex and federal check fraud. During this time, he met and married his second wife. He received probation on a few charges, but the check fraud case ended up landing Manson in federal jail. First in California, 
then transferred to Washington State, then returned back to California. His second wife also divorced him while he was incarcerated and claimed that she had had his second child. He was finally released from federal prison in Los Angeles, California in March 1967 at the age of 32. At this point, he had been in prison, uh, either prison or some other type of institution, for more than half of his life, which is an amazing number and tragic concept when you think about it. A few months after his release, he moved to San Francisco, California, Bay Area. Initially, this was not an approved move by the probation department, which would have normally been a violation. However, the probation office chose to assign him a local federal probation officer named Roger Smith. Smith just happened to also work at a clinic that did LSD research, which was funded in part by the CIA. After he was transferred to Washington, some ABC agencies also known as CIA and the FBI. Yeah. (laughs) Some ABC agencies took notice to Charles and had him transferred back to California where Roger Smith was located. Roger Smith was employed by the CIA and just so happened to work for Jolly West underneath Project MKUltra, which is a familiar name if you listen to the the JFK episode. He had a brief stint in there when he, he, he was the psychiatrist while... Jack Ruby was in jail. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Roger Smith. Oh, I just said the part. Roger Smith was responsible for testing LSD on unsuspecting victims in San Francisco. The goal of MKUltra was to study the effects of LSD on humans with the hope of being able to control their mind and turn them into a so-called Manchurian candidate, which is a book that came out... Um, and it, it was pretty much like control, like, you know, sleeper agents where it's like, oh, you hear this sound and then you're oh, a badass yeah, yeah, yeah. can go and kill uh-huh. people. Yeah, it's kind of, right. that's what they were trying to do with it. They're trying to make like, oh. like secret agents, not really secret agents, but like they were trying to control people to have them kill other people. Uh, that was a really oh. rough way of describing it, but that's pretty much what they, what their goal was. Okay. Yeah. MK Ultra had many goals, but that was their main priority. Roger Smith's most prominent study took place in the Height Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which, I hate. Uh, yeah, I hate Ashbury. His most prominent study took place in the Height Ashbury uh, Free Medical Clinic, where he offered the founder of the hospital federal funding if he allowed Roger to study drug use on the populace and even conduct light experiments. This included Operation Midnight Climax. It didn't take place in the hospital, but Operation Midnight Climax uh, involved prostitutes drugging unsuspecting Johns with LSD and having scientists watch them through uh, what two-way mirrors, or is that what they're <gasps> called, where you can see through the side of the mirror? Okay. Yeah. So just on a side tangent, that's the most ridiculous name. Midnight Climax. <laughs> yeah. Midnight Climax Operation. That's funny. Someone had some fun naming Rid- that one, that's for sure. Ridiculous. <laughs> Holy shit. How did they ever say that with a straight face knowing that what it was? <laughs> yeah, it was about prostitutes. Jesus. So Along with Roger, Jolly West was also working at Haight-Ashbury. West was an expert in violence, psychiatry, and hypnotism. So, this guy was a weird, real weirdo. That's a lot. Haight-Ashbury wasn't just a regular hospital, though. It was actually, it was an apartment that was dressed up to look like a hospital. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In an undercover document written by Jolly West to several graduate students who eventually became staff at the so-called hospital, West gave them specific orders to grow their hair out, wear jeans and flip-flops, and recruit people who look like hippies to come into their hospital for treatment. Oh, that's interesting. 
However, this wasn't West's first LSD experiment in a hospital. He started at the Lachlan, sorry, he started at the Lachlan Air Force Base, conducting experiments primarily on prisoners there, also some members of the Air Force. Not cool. Knock that shit off. In, yeah. In July 1954, a three-year-old girl went missing from a bar near the Air Force Base. About three hours later, police were called when Jimmy Shaver, a flight instructor at the Air Force Base, wandered out of the brush near the bar covered in blood and extremely confused, not knowing who he was or how he got there. Oh, no. Yeah. After some oh, searching in the good. area, the little girl's body was discovered. This was likely Jolly West's first successful trial. But the strangeness doesn't end there. West not. inserted himself into Jimmy's trial as Jimmy's psychiatrist and supposedly wiped his memory using sodium pentothal. Oh. oh. But this wasn't the first time meeting Jolly West. Jimmy suffered from headaches and was undergoing experimental treatment from Jolly West at the hospital on base. In a letter sent from Jolly West to the director of the CIA, West claimed his initial experiments were successful, but eventually they'd have to take it to the streets to see how effective it could be. In the oh. same letter, he claimed he was able to successfully wipe specific memories from a person and inject fake memories into them. His solution to needing to take his experiment to the street was the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. Seems mm. to have worked exactly as planned because Manson and his followers were frequent visitors to the free clinic. So, that's just setting up the initial bizarre that yeah. they were, Manson and his followers were all involved in Project MK Ultra, directly that involved through Jolly West and Roger Smith. Wild. Yeah. Wild. Okay, back, back to the brutal side. <laughs> back to the brutal. So, at this point, Manson was developing his group of followers, commonly referred to in later years as his family, mostly made up of young, emotionally insecure women. He and his family would frequently take LSD, and his probation officer noted that Manson's personality started to change very quickly at this time. So... The drug use became part of the family culture, and one of the members claimed it was used as a method of control. Manson was said to give higher doses to family members in an effort to program submission by the members. He spent Just a, a quick lot of interjection. Um, mm -hmm. He sometimes he wouldn't even take the LSD himself. He would fake it and say that he took it, but he was just lying and said like, "Oh yeah, I took a high dose too." And was just watching these people trip. So, and it, it makes me wonder if all of this was done at the direction <clears throat> of Jolly West and Smith, or if he was like, I want to see what happens to them if I do this to them. So it's believed that he learned how to do this from Jolly West and Roger Smith. Right. And a little side note that, um, as we know with the Whitey Bulger, they did start Project MK Ultra on prisoners, but it's never been confirmed that Manson was part of the experiment in prison. It's only been confirmed that he was part of the experiment after he got out. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, as we mentioned, he spent a lot of time in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. Haight-Ashbury was known for people being interested in the counterculture movement, which was very popular at the time. The hippies that you mentioned, counterculture counter was an anti-establishment movement that started in the mid-1960s. It sought to question authority in the status quo and often incorporated the use of drugs by those involved in the movement. Thus the LSD, but there were also using other drugs at the time. He continued building his family, and at one point he was living with 19 women. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. I wouldn't want to live with 19 women. 
Glad you said it. I might get called a pig if I said it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the family members, Mary Bruner, became pregnant and gave birth to Manson's third child in April 1968. In 1968, Manson and his family were traveling in a bus they had renovated, and they relocated back to the Los Angeles area. During this entire time, Manson and his activities continued to be monitored by his parole officer, Smith. So, which is getting too much trouble. Shady. I mean, it's one thing. Yes, the parole officer should know what he's doing, but he shouldn't be using him as an experiment. And that's exactly what he was doing. (laughs) On more than one occasion, Manson was arrested, but soon released with charges reduced or just additional probation given. So then that comes into the whole, like, is, were they reduced because he was part of the study and they were looking at shady stuff? I don't know. Well, they, what, uh, author Tom, or reporter, I should say, reporter Tom O'Neill, he says that he was being released so that they could continue the experiment while he was outside because they'd already known what happens with prisoners but they don't know if oh is this guy gonna go crazy and then go kill a bunch of people which might be a <laughs> what happened right. we don't know yet we'll get right. there but he yeah basically they wanted to know what would happen if he was out roaming around and actively like getting his mind controlled quote unquote right that's why he was being released constantly and not really getting more charges Right. And considering his his wide and long criminal background That's for the majority of his life, people thought it was some people thought it was strange that he was getting slapped on the wrist and he had all of these massive, you know, most people, if you are on probation and you commit another crime, you get to go back to prison. You don't just get more probation time added on and then get sent to just run around the state like chickens with your heads cut off. So So I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to take acid while you're on probation, but I don't know. I've never been on probation or taken acid. So right. Well, it's illegal now, but I actually did look it up and it was not illegal back then. LSD was not an illegal. Nope. Not until hmm. I think it was nineteen early seventies is when they moved it to uh, Schedule One, I believe. So back okay. then it was legal. Once MK Ultra was wrapped up, then they're like, "Oh, we should make this illegal." Right, <laughs> right. exactly. <laughs> Whoops. Um, two of the family members had a chance encounter with Dennis Wilson, a member of the popular band The Beach Boys. Manson and his family soon became close acquaintances with Wilson and eventually moved into Wilson's home. That didn't go well, as you might expect. Uh, Wilson introduced Manson to several people in the music industry, including the producer Terry Melcher. This meeting would play a factor in Manson family activities several months later. By August of 1968, Manson the Manson family set up their living situation at a 55-acre movie ranch near Los Angeles. The owner of the ranch was 80-year-old George Spawn. He let Manson and his followers live there for free while the family members did chores uh, around the ranch. Manson would also make several of the female members have sex with the ranch owner in order to stay there. That's still a side so, note. Um... Have you seen the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I have not. So that movie is about this whole case. but Is it, it really? Yeah, it's by Quentin Tarantino. It's a pretty good movie, mm. but it's a slow burn. But I just wanted to throw that in there in case people want to have a better representation because a lot of it takes place at Spawn Ranch. So it's also a movie, okay. so it's very fictitious, but it's still a good watch. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I'll have to check that out sometime. Uh, Manson didn't just lead the family in where to live, what drugs to take, who to have sex with, but
but he also did a fair amount of preaching to the group. His beliefs often incorporated ideals from different types of religion, societal movements, and even things he heard in music that he interpreted as meaningful. By 1969, he was focusing on doomsday proclamations. He would tell the family about race wars and that he would be the chosen leader for everyone. I don't know why anyone would choose him as a leader, but I guess that maybe that's what LSD does to your brain. So there, this is like, it's really hard to find information on this, but there's a project that kind of worked with mk ultra called project chaos and it was oh. i believe it was the fbi uh, that was setting it up but it was basically trying to incite race wars so oh they would they would do a lot of things and like purposely blame it on either the black panthers or hippies in this case nice. but that well, was another project that coincided with it and i believe played a part in everything well yeah because and we'll get to it later but manson did a few crimes and tried to blame it on other organs other groups i should say so um i wonder if he learned that by seeing that from uh, the fbi or the cia or whatever or if he was like oh, this would be really smart if I did it, or if they told him, go do this and blame it on somebody else. I don't know if they told them, but I bet they strongly suggested it. <laughs> yeah. So in the March of that year, Manson went to the former home of Terry Melcher, the music producer. Melcher was no longer living at the residence, and Manson had a few short encounters with the current residence. The home was occupied by actress Sharon Tate and her director husband, Roman Polanski. At the time that Manson showed up at the home, Tate was there as w with a friend. They directed him to go to the guest cottage at the back. He came looking for Melcher, and he said, I, I want to talk to Melcher, and they said, well... Go, go check in the back. There's like a guest house in the back. And so he walked away from them, went to the back, um, went to the guest house. And the owner of the guest house told him that Melcher no longer lived there and asked him to leave. He was only there for a brief minute, but um, it was a fateful meeting to say the least. It was very brief because he was only there for a few minutes, but he did know the house he'd been at the house and this is the house where sh bad stuff happened so in the summer of 1969 actions from several family members and manson started causing problems for the family one member uh charles uh sorry tex one member tex watson robbed a drug dealer named bernard crow who then threatened to kill everyone at the ranch. Manson soon shot the drug dealer and believed that he had killed him. He thought the drug dealer was a member of the Black Panther Party, which was a black power political organization. Fearing retaliation, Manson started having armed patrols of the ranch and brought in members of a motorcycle club to act as security. Along with the biker gangs, a spook named Reeve Whitson made his way into the ranch. A spook is an undercover informant slash agent, uh, usually working for the FBI or the CIA. Reeves happened okay. to be working for both in his uh, career, but at the time, at in this timeline, he's working for the CIA. So another okay. person from the CIA who has direct contact with uh, Manson and the family. Manson, okay. Reeve lived in Los Angeles and had a wife and daughter. In the mid-60s, Reeve told his wife that she needed to travel to Sweden with their daughter, which was where uh, his wife was from. He told his family that they were his only vulnerability and that he needed them out of the country for an upcoming undercover mission at Spawn Ranch. Oh, He made shit. himself to look like a hippie with long hair and jeans. When the family members were questioned about him, uh, they would say that he looked very familiar, but they also said that 
there were so many people there that looked like him that it was hard to be for sure. But a lot of the people said that he was there. Okay. And he was doing what? Just he was an insider like, and informant? Reportedly, yes. He was just an insider, but oh. it brings up the question, why would that group need someone from the CIA to infiltrate them? Unless he was gotcha. maybe... So it's believed that he was actually um, like not controlling Manson, but suggesting these ideas that are, we're about to talk about. Oh. And like kind of bringing them up to him. Interesting. Yeah. So a few weeks after uh, the murder of the, or the, the shooting of the drug dealer. Shooting. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manson sent several family members to Gary Hinman's home. Hinman was a friend of a few of the family members. They believed Hinman had recently come into financial inheritance and Manson wanted it. Because why wouldn't you? The group was made up of Bobby Beausoleil, Susan Atkins, and Mary Bruner. And they held Hinman hostage for a couple of days. Hinman denied having any money and Manson came to the house and cut the man with a sword. Beausoleil claimed that Manson then ordered him, right? Like a sword, that's not so. a sword, right? Well, it's Charles Manson. Nothing, nothing is just straightforward. Beausoleil claimed that Manson then ordered him to stab Hinman, which he did, and he killed him. One of the women and Beausoleil then wrote the words "political piggy" on the wall with Hinman's blood. They also drew a panther paw which was the symbol for the Black Panther Party. Again, trying to frame other people for doing something you did. And it happened to be a racial uh, event, if you want to call it that. Uh, Beausoleil was arrested two weeks later while driving Hinman's car. The murder weapon was in the vehicle. Two days after Beausoleil was arrested, Manson sent several family members to the former house of Melcher. The group consisted of Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. The group snuck onto the property, did as directed, and brutally killed everyone in the home. The victims were Jay Sebring. Uh, I'm going to not say this properly. Wojciech Frykowski. Abigail Folger, Stephen Parent, and Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant. Most of the victims had been stabbed. Some some of them were stabbed dozens of times. Two of the victims were also shot, and one had multiple head injuries. Tate and Sebring were also hanged, although neither died from the hanging itself, but from their other injuries. Watson claimed that Manson, yeah. And remember, Sharon Tate is pregnant. eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so that Watson counts as another kill, too. <laughs> technically, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, they, I don't think they actually included that in the, the charges at the end. But uh, Watson claimed that Manson had instructed the women to leave a sign, quote, something witchy unquote, at the scene. Atkins wrote the word pig on the front door in Tate's blood and later claimed she did this to make it look similar to Hinman's murder for which Beausoleil had been arrested. So Reeves' attorney, the uh, the informant Sneaky guy informant. who was at the ranch. Yeah. So his attorney confirmed that Reeves was at Tate's house for three to four hours after the murders, but before authorities arrived. I did not know that. So Reeves reportedly had Tate's house under surveillance, so he knew exactly when the group entered and left. 
He also had friends with Roman and Tate and had been at their house multiple times before the murder. The reason is unknown, but it is believed that when he visited their house previously, it was to plant listening devices. So the three to four hours he was in the home after everyone left would likely be to remove any of the bugs or surveillance devices. Oh, jeez. Okay, so question then. Did they stake out Tate's house because Manson went there looking for Terry Melcher and they were like, oh, we're going to monitor this house? Or do you think they told him to go there? I was never confirmed or denied because uh, um, Reeves died by the time this information was coming out. It was coming from his attorney. He just mentioned that oh. um, that Reeves had asked people to monitor the house. Whether that, I don't, it didn't say if that was before the murders or the night only the night of the murders, but he had FBI informants or, the, or not. He had F, FBI agents watching the house. Uh, just so happened to be on the night that they were murdered. Oh, jeez. Well, yeah. that's shitty. I mean, ugh. The next night, the four murderers from the Tate house formed a larger group and went to the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles. This group consisted of Manson, Watkins, uh, sorry, Watson, Atkins, Kasabian, Krenwinkel, as well as Leslie Von Houten and Clem Grogan. The house they chose this time belonged to Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, and it happened to be next door to a house the family had been at the previous year. So they went to this section of town, they went to a party at a house, and then later they're coming forward and they go to uh, the LaBianca home, which was next to this house that they had been at a party at the previous year. Only three of the family went into the LaBianca home. That was Watson, Van Houten, and Krenwinkel. Both of the LaBiancas were stabbed and killed, uh, suffering dozens of stab wounds from both a bayonet and kitchen knives. Watson also carved the word war into LaBianca's, into Mr. LaBianca's abdomen. Krenwinkel wrote the words rise and death to pigs and helter skelter on the walls in the victim's blood. The term helter-skelter was believed to be a phrase that Manson interpreted from a Beatles album, which he turned into uh, meaning a race war. So listening to music shouldn't make you want to kill people, but I mean. Van Houten claimed that she stabbed Mrs. LaBianca several times, but only after she was deceased. This seemed plausible based on the autopsy. While these murders were occurring, Manson drove Atkins, Kasabian, and Grogan to another location where he intended for them to murder the residents, the, the resident at that location. Kasabian later claimed that she knocked on the wrong door, uh, and since it was not their intended victim, they abandoned the plan and left. About two weeks after the LaBianca murders, one of the ranch hands residing at Spawn Ranch had earned the anger of Manson. His name was Donald Shea. Manson ordered several family members to kill Shea, which they did. Manson wasn't a fan of Shea's, possibly because he believed uh, Shea had reported the family to the police, or maybe because Shea had married a black woman, which Manson didn't approve of. Nobody really knows what the, you know, the reason was. Either way, they killed Shea. Uh, and left his body on a hillside where it was not found for over eight years. The family was suspected of committing possibly more than a do dozen other murders. Some of these murders occurred before the Tate-LaBianca murders, while others came after uh, Manson uh, and after the family had been arrested. One of those possible victims was Ronald Hughes, Leslie Van Houten's lawyer. 
He had angered Manson by refusing to allow Van Houten to take the stand and exonerate Manson. Hughes had gone camping, but never returned. His body was located four months later, although the cause of death was not determined and no one was charged with his death. One of the family members claimed that Hughes' murder was the first of the retaliation murders. Let's take a little look into Hughes because that was an interesting death. So Lynn from, or Lynette from, sorry, uh, who was a member of the family, claimed that Hughes was murdered in retaliation, like you said. However, the area Hughes was camping in reportedly experienced flash floods and trapped Hughes' mud in car, trapped Hughes' car in mud. He was on a trip with two other people, James Forsher and Lauren Elder. They reported that Hughes decided to stay by the car while they hiked out. Hughes was last seen by three campers on the morning of November 28th. They later told investigators that Hughes was alone at the time and had briefly stopped to talk with them. Hughes also, also appeared to be unharmed and it was in an area that was away from the flash flood. Over the following months, police conducted more than a dozen searches of the area where Hughes was last seen. After receiving an anonymous tip in March 1971, police also searched in the area surrounding the Barker Ranch in Inyo County, where Manson and Associates had previously lived. On March 29, 1971, the same day, the jury returned the death... Uh, let me restart that. On March 29, 1971... The same day the jury returned the death penalty verdicts against all the defendants on all counts, Hughes' severely decomposed body was discovered by two fishermen in Ventura County. His body was found wedged between two boulders in a gorge. So, I, I don't know if that's common with flash flood deaths, but his body was like shoved in between two rocks. Well, and... What was interesting uh, in one of the sources I saw that the last day that Hughes was in court and he had pissed off Manson by not letting um, his client testify, uh, Manson made the co made a comment like, "I never want to see you in court again." And then they and recessed, <laughs> and he never did. So yeah, I Nathan guess the theory like a would be, powerful guy. <laughs> yeah, I, the theory would be that, you know, he made the statement and the family members that were outside of the courtroom took that as direction to take matters into their own hands. If, if they in fact did murder him out of retaliation, as one said that they did. So... <laughs> For months, law enforcement investigated all of the murders, but didn't initially know they were linked. The family was under investigation for numerous car thefts that led to the arrest of several members, including Susan Atkins. Atkins had been talking to her cellmates about her involvement in the Hinman murder, which she later admitted to detectives and was arrested for. By the beginning of December 1969, police obtained arrest warrants for Watson, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian for the Tate murders. The involvement of family members in the LaBianca murders was also noted. The trial began mid-June 1970 with Manson, Van Houten, Atkins, and Krenwinkel being charged with seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Watson was detained in Texas and fought extradition, which resulted in him having a separate trial the following year. Also, Kasabian, um, this isn't as like important to the case, but... The prosecutor who was going against the family was a fucking nut job. Like he, so he had a kid and he thought that the kid wasn't his and that it, it was actually the milkman's kid. So he would follow the milkman around and harass him and like, like just be like, oh, just admit that you fucked my wife and that's not my kid. And so what? they had to put a restraining order on him. And he would, like, call the family and, like, they changed their phone number. He'd send them a, a letter and be like, oh, it's not nice that you changed your phone number. I just want to talk. And, like, 
was super weird and harassing wow. the whole family about that. So it's not That's pertinent weird. to the case at all, but the guy's a fucking nut job. <laughs> Interesting. So Kasabian was the prosecution's star witness during the original trial. It was believed that Kasabian had not directly participated in any of the murders, but she could give an account of what happened each night. Kasabian was offered immunity for her testimony. Manson was originally granted the option to defend himself, but was quickly changed due to his strange behaviors and outbursts. Throughout the trial, Manson showed his dominance over the female co-defendants, as well as family members who were observing the trial. This was demonstrated when Manson appeared in court one day with an X carved in his forehead. Within a few days, the co-defendants did the same, and several of the followers who were outside the courthouse also carved an X into their forehead. So he started with an X and then evolved yeah. to the swastika after he realized yeah. the X was weird. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Or the X didn't mean enough. I So he had to draw okay. some tails on it. I don't know. Within a few days, the co-defendants did the same. Oh, I already said that. On another occasion, Manson caused a disruption in the court by showing a newspaper in which the president of the United States, Richard Nixon, made a statement that Manson was guilty. The following day, the female defendants stood together claiming the trial shouldn't be continued based on the newspaper remark. And in another demonstration of his power over the family members, Manson showed up with a shaved head. And soon after, so did the co-defendants, as well as several members outside the courthouse. So everything he did, they copied. Even with all the disruptions and strange behaviors, the trial ended with guilty verdicts for everyone in January 1971. They were all sentenced to death, which was later overturned when California determined the death penalty was unconstitutional. This changed the sentences to life with possibility of parole. Manson was later found guilty in the murders of Hinman and Shea. His hold over the family continued for years after his arrest and sentencing. In 1975, one of the family members was arrested and convicted for attempting to assassinate the president, Gerald Ford. While another family member was convicted of conspiring to send threats through the mail. These two family members were living together at the time and had moved to Sacramento, California, so they could be closer to where Manson was serving his prison sentence. Manson attempted parole many times, but was never granted it. He died from complications associated with colon cancer in November 2017. As far as the other family members involved in the Tate and LaBianca murders, Krenwinkel initially stayed uh, loyal to Manson and the family, but later separated herself from the ideals. She applied for parole over a dozen times, each being denied. In May 2022, she was granted parole, but five months later, the governor of California overturned that decision as he believed she was still a threat to society. She's still in prison. Atkins was convicted of the seven victims in the Tate and LaBianca murders, as well as Gary Hinman's murder. She applied close to 20 times for parole and was denied each time. She also requested compassionate release due to terminal brain cancer, but that was also denied. She died in September 2009. Watson was convicted in his separate trial of the seven murders. He married while in prison and fathered four children. He has also applied for parole nearly 20 times and been denied each time. Van Houten was granted a retrial in 1977 because the judge in the original trial did not grant a mistrial when her attorney went missing and was later found dead. So she was given a retrial. The first retrial, the jury couldn't reach a verdict, so they did a second retrial. Ultimately, she was still convicted um, at, the, at the retrial. She was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. She applied for parole over 20 times and was denied until November 2021, at which time the parole board recommended her release. Almost four months later, the California governor overruled that recommendation, just like he did with the other one. But in May 2023, California Court of Appeals rejected the governor's decision, and she was released from prison on parole at the age of 73. 
that happened July of this year. She was finally released. I didn't hear about that. It's crazy. You didn't? Oh, God, that was everywhere. Just a couple weeks ago, she got out. Damn. And that is the story. Yeah. Crazy Manson family. Right? And the some brutal, some CIA bizarre, some super weird. Organizing it. <laughs> I won't say that they organized it, but it's, in my opinion, it looks pretty clear that they did something to be involved. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they didn't, like, I don't know, it's some shady stuff going on. And there's definitely a lot of questions that, you know, probably never going to get the answers to. True. But. Well, do you have a chaser for us, Mom? We're I do have a chaser. Up. I do have a chaser, and uh, it's an article that I found that. Uh, scientists are looking at the effect of espresso uh, because they believe it might prevent degenerative diseases in the brain like dementia and Alzheimer's. So a recent study in Italy found that caffeine and espresso, concentrated coffee, concentrated caffeine, um, could prevent the cellular changes that are believed to cause things like dementia and Alzheimer's. And they obviously need to do more uh, study on it, but they're looking at possibly that might help. So I thought that was really interesting. I had never heard that they were looking at that. Um, I mean, you know, they're always trying to find something to help combat those degenerative changes, which is good because with my family history, that might happen to me. Yeah, but and you Papa, are. Papa drank a lot of coffee and still got dementia. I don't know if that's true. That's a good <laughs> point. That's a good point. But yeah. um, this study specifically looked at espresso, and so I don't. Yeah, I don't that's know. That's just people trying would... to smell more espresso. Very. Same thing with know. the red wine is good for your heart thing. It's like, it's, there's true. no way it is, but red, red wine companies like to say it is. Well, I don't drink coffee or espresso. So if it's going to help me not get Alzheimer's or dementia, then I guess I better start drinking it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What chaser do you have today? So my chaser. Oh, sorry. My chaser is another dog story. And Yay, dogs. A man named James White was fishing off of the shoreline when he caught a really big fish. But this fish that he caught was actually a shark. <laughs> and oh. so when he got it up onto the shore, tried to take the hook out, the shark grabbed onto his leg. And he, uh James had a dog with him, but the dog was about 100 feet away from him uh, in the truck with the doors rolled down or the windows rolled down so he could get some fresh air. And James' dog, Darby, saw that he was getting attacked by the shark, jumped out of the truck, ran over and started biting the shark <laughs> until the shark nice. let go of him. And James was able to grab it by the tail and put it back into the water, but he almost lost his leg and Darby saved him. Yay, Darby! Flew out of the truck and started fighting a shark for this guy. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. What a good dog. I thought that was pretty cool. That's a good boy. Yes, he definitely got lots of treats after that. <laughs> oh, hell yeah, man. That's awesome. Well, I, I guess our episode wasn't quite as long as we thought it would be. Right up on an hour right now. So We're still an hour. That's pretty good. Cause... <laughs> yeah. About Most recent what we ones have been do. like 30 to 40. Yeah. 
Well, uh, thanks everyone for sticking with us for a whole year. Yeah. See if you can stick around for another one. <laughs> yes. Uh, More to come. We are here. We are yes. thankful for all of you listening. If you enjoyed this style of episode, let us know if there's any other brutal and bizarre cases that you'd like us to cover in this format. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I love you, Mom. I love you too, bud. Bye, everybody. Thanks Bye. for watching. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.